The following message is a part of the teaching ministry of Grace Bible Church of Fairburn, Georgia, on the web at gracebible.faith. That's gracebible.faith. All right, so we are going to be returning in our work to Second Peter. I know we had a, um, a bit of a, a break from Second Peter. Matt very, very graciously walked with us through a special series in the book of Hosea, and I'm very grateful for that. I know it was a benefit to all of us. And, uh, but now, returning back to Second Peter, we were last in the letter approximately, well, four weeks ago, not approximately, four weeks ago to the day. So, and in that time, we finished all the way up to Second Peter chapter 2, verse 10. And if you also have a copy of Second Peter printed out and magnetized up to your door in your office or study or home, then you'll look at it and you'll say, wait, we're, we're halfway through, at least on the, the, the sweep of the, the line by line. So we're approximately halfway through the letter. And until last night, my intentions were to pick up where we left off, beginning with a bit of a review, then working through verse 10 to 11. Um, and that was what I, I shared with the elders. That's what I had been laboring in throughout the week. But in spite of my cutting material, the review grew and changed. It was, it's like this uh, object that just morphs. I just I whack something off and something else grows larger. And so what was becoming an introduction became the body of a message, and it continued to transform to now becoming more of a high-level approach to chapter 2 and a pastoral exhortation. So it's not my common practice, um, but it's also not for a lack of material. I, I, I weigh through these things, and I think that I'm, I'm mindful we're, we're here. We're not, we're not doing a, um, a study of Second Peter for some faceless group that well, they need to make sure we cover these things on this date. We're, we're here in this local church. And so mindful of this local church, I think this would be the better part of wisdom. And that's what I'd like to work on this morning. So um, I appreciate, Frank, you talking through some of my uh, points that I was, I was a little concerned. We'll get to it next week. But I thought, mm, this is a hard part that we'll get to next week. And I was like, I'm not even sure that Frank will agree with me. And he did. So it was really exciting. I hope he does next week. Um, so... Maybe now that he's got some time to think about it more, that could, I could maybe have challenged my own position. But nevertheless, I think this would be good for us to understand the book and as we walk through some weighty matters. Second um, Peter 2 is really hard. Um, and it, I think it really can tax us. Um, some things that you get exposed to in life can be more taxing. I know with the prior uh, work that I had, some people would ask occasionally, boy, that's got to be really hard or to be exposed to certain things so much. And I didn't realize how much it was until later, and, and so it was with Second Peter chapter 2. There's hard things in here. Because Peter's not just saying, well, here's my, my gang of friends. These are enemies of Christ and his church. And so I think that we need to work through it accordingly and try to prepare ourselves. So let's begin by reading Second Peter chapter 2 together. We're going to actually read the whole of the chapter, because I want you to see and hear the tone of the whole of the chapter. And then we'll work through again a a measure of a high level with the pastoral exhortation we've woven in there. So here we have Second Peter chapter 2. Peter writes, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who brought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of the truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels who sinned, but cast them into the pit and delivered them to chains of darkness, being kept for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, 
with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, and if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who had lived ungodly lives thereafter, and if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard that righteous man while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trial and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who go after the flesh in its corrupt lust and despise authority, daring, self-willed. They do not tremble when they blaspheme glorious ones, whereas angels who are greater in strength and power do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, blaspheming where they have no knowledge, will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed, suffering unrighteousness as the wages of their unrighteousness, considering it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are stains and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions as they feast with you, having eyes full of adultery and unceasing sin, enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed. They are cursed children, forsaking the right way. They have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, but he received a rebuke for his own lawlessness. For a mute donkey, speaking out with the voice of a man, restrained the madness of the prophet. These are springs without water and mist driven by a storm, for whom the black darkness has been kept. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by sensual lust of the flesh those who barely escape the ones who conduct themselves in error, promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. For if they are overcome, having both escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and having again been entangled in them, then the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it, to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. The message of the true proverb has happened to them. A dog returns to its own vomit, and a so, after washing, returns to wallowing in the mire. You can see this is a hard chapter, isn't it? It has a lot of really hard language. The closest examples I can think of, so if this is Wednesday night and a little bit more casual, a little bit more um, uh, open as it were, I'd say, what does it remind you of? And it may be an assortment of responses, but for me, I think of Ezekiel 34 and I think of Matthew 23, both of which are severe rebukes on failed, hypocritical, and even wicked leadership of God's people. And it's heartbreaking because these are not some outside offenders, some external threat but an offensive threat by those who have identified themselves as teachers within the church. Those who have postured themselves as, as servants to the larger body. They, those who actually are laboring in study and prayer and meditation so that we might understand, apply, and declare the truths of God's word. That's who they're posturing themselves as. That's who we are. But these have perverted this work and the charge befitting the title of teacher. So it's most fitting that Peter who's identified, identified himself as an apostle, as a slave, and shepherd of Christ's church, would answer the offense of these persons with such severe treatment and language. 
And he does this, not by lashing out. So you can imagine somebody comes in and they're, they're posing, they're presenting themselves as, as though they're mimicking you and what you invest your life in, what you're sacrificially giving yourself to and what your, your blessed hope is fixed to. I can imagine, I know myself well enough to be potential measure of lashing out me, like just really rebuking them in a severe and maybe an embarrassing way, just out of emotion and frustration and anger all welled together. But he does not lash out. And he's not just throwing out insults, but he is providing charges and blows that speak to the precise nature, the character, and actions of the offender. He's answering them in kind, not kindly, but in kind very severely. And as students of Second Peter, I hope you remember that this engagement, this very intense language, comes immediately after Peter's given special attention to something, namely the authoritative word of God. In chapter 1, verses 16 through 21, um, we saw this attention to the authoritative word of God, and it was there that we saw his development of the apostolic testimony and the prophetic word, the the sum and content of the scriptures, which provide not only the foundation, but the substance of anything that is faithfully expressed by true teachers in Christ's church. So having that understanding of the scriptures, that's of preeminent value as they are the authoritative source of leadership, of direction, of conduct, and content of the faithful teacher's life and message. And it was following this foundation of the authoritative word of God that Peter introduced us to the false teacher. And with this came a a decided shift in the letter as well. So again, if you, um, a lot of you have your Bibles and you've, you've had them long enough, you've read certain passages, you remember where it is on the page and where it is in the book or, and you, you can just eyeball it there. Well, here you might see as you're reading, ah, here's a shift. Something's changed. So we have a decided shift in the book. Up to this point, there's been really no overt threat that's been expressed in the letter. The tone, the content, a lot has changed here. And there had been the prospect of failure and loss that accompanies not being diligent to, to strengthen and mature faith, one's faith. That was described by the supplying it with the list of, remember, these things? Remember that? We're going to refresh ourselves on these things a few times today, but... These things found in chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. So there was the danger before. So maybe there's a little bit of the tone that we could pick up on later. There's the danger of the prospect of failure and loss. As he states in chapter 1, verse 9, For in whom these things are not present, that one is blind, being nearsighted, having forgotten the purification from his former sins. And then perhaps there was an allusion to an assault on the the integrity of the apostolic testimony where Peter stated, not... He doesn't say, this is why I'm saying this, but there's maybe an inference we can draw from it in chapter 1, verse 16. For we did not make known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ following cleverly devised myths, but being eyewitnesses of his majesty. So I think there's good argument that while chapter 2 does bring a firm shift to the letter, there were already some allusions to this direction of the letter in the first chapter as well. And I would argue that was true for both of the passages I cited The second one, verse 16, is more plainly connected. There was the illusion of the challenging of the apostolic authority. But the first one, verse 9, should put us all on proper notice. And I say that again, we're not just generally speaking here. We're not at a a convention of uh, persons interested in 2 Peter. We're not at some kind of theater context where we're just talking about these things. We're talking to the church. 
the members thereof, to, to those of us who know and love one another, we should be put on proper notice when we think about this. Not necessarily of a threat presented by others, but a threat presented by ourselves. Because with a command also comes the prospect, the possibility of, not, of it not being obeyed. So when a command's given, there is that potential and reality quite often that it won't be obeyed. So there's the prospect, the possibility that you or I will not be diligent, that will fail to supply our faith with moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly love, and agape love. And should we fail here, we will prove to be what? Useless and fruitless in the true knowledge of God. We will in this regard be failures. Who's excited about that? Anybody? No. Not of such a nature, though, that we can't be restored or do better. It's not that, well, I can't apply all these things, so, you know, I guess I just lose. No, you can be obedient, you can grow in grace, and you can do better. You can even be repentant for a choice or actions to the contrary. But in that moment or in that season, we'll find ourselves in dangerous territory. Because while we have taken time to distinguish between failing and hypocrisy, we've walked through that already, there's a delicately thin line between the two. Failure is I tried and I couldn't accomplish it or I didn't accomplish it. Hypocrisy is I'm not trying and I may posture myself as if I am, but there's a delicately thin line between the two, sometimes not easily parsed. And if failure is not repented of and mortified, then it easily transitions to hypocrisy. And this puts one in terrible company and at a place where those who Peter spoke about in verse 9 of chapter 1, namely those who have forgotten the forgiveness of their former sins and the clear testimony that came at their baptism, looking less and less like slaves of Christ. And that is dangerous, dangerous place to find oneself. We didn't just press these things so that we'd have a nice list to, to maybe put on a bookmark one day or so we could recite and fire back at one another. Oh, you forgot this or you got out of order. That's not what that's about. It's for the care and the maturing of our souls. So Peter exhorts in view of this, in view of this threat of potential failure, he writes in, in chapter 1, verse 12, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and choosing sure. For in supplying your faith with moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly love, and agape love, you will never stumble. Remember, that was precious. Never stumble. Is that possible? Peter says it is. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been strengthened in the truth which is present with you. So we can plainly see and hear Peter pastorally leading and protecting the flock, Christ's flock. He's provided clear commands to them and will do everything within his ability to strengthen them in their obedience to these things. He's charged them, and now, as we see, he's going to warn them. And that brings us to the more overt allusion to threats. Those who would challenge the apostolic testimony, attempting to undermine its credibility, the prospective charge being that Peter and the others drew from cleverly devised myths. Well, well who does that? Who says I'm going to create a doctrinal standard or body of truth from drawing on cleverly devised myths? Well, 
those who cannot draw on the authority of being a divinely appointed eyewitness, or those who can't be found to be faithful stewards of the scriptures. They have to source their authority from somewhere, right? Either you're an apostolic witness or you're drawing from the apostolic witness. Either you are a prophet or you're drawing from the, the word of the prophets. So you either have idolatry, which creates a gods of one. Of, so you either are drawing from truth or you're drawing from a cleverly devised myth. So we're drawn from truth or you're an idolater, one who creates a god of one's own imagination. Or, or maybe you have truth, but you've perverted truth which reimagines the God of the scriptures. And so really we're limited in our options here. Cleverly devised myths springs off into either idolatry or distortion of the scriptures, or you have a tr true and sure word. So these other ones, the perversion of the scriptures and the idolatrous works, they're both counterfeit. They're, they're the, the perverting work of Satan, right? That's what he's always done. But the latter, the, the one that distorts the scriptures, that's a more skilled and cunning expression of this distortion. Namely, again, the distortion of true authority, the scriptures, which is exactly the nature of the work of the false prophets. Remember them? The false prophets, that's what they did. Thus says the Lord, and manipulating what the word of the Lord was. And now Peter says, like the false prophets, so is the false teacher. What are they doing? They're taking that sure and perfect word, the apostolic word, the apostolic testimony, the prophetic word, and they're perverting it. That's what the false teacher is doing today. And it's an assault an assault um, that, uh, on the word of God itself and therefore the credible authority that it provides. It's a counterfeit, and it's challenged by what means? By the clarity of the scriptures. So the work of establishing the authoritative credibility of the scriptures in the last portion of chapter 1, do you see how critical that was before we introduce false teachers? Peter says, this was my testimony. It's sure, it's true, it's the scriptures. Now we're going to engage those who manipulate, distort, and perverse the scriptures and their life, conduct, and teaching. So the last part of portion of chapter 1 was critical as we now turn our attention to the perverting work of the false teachers who Peter anticipated would rise up among you. Who's his audience? The church. Believers. So we could more plainly state it, False teachers who will rise up within the church. And clearly they have. Now, Peter was writing these words in his last days. You remember that? And this was a burden of care for his beloved. He writes in chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent. It's, it's, it's happening. It's soon to come. As our Lord Jesus Christ has indicated to me, and I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you will be able to call these things, what you are to supply your faith with, you will be able to call these things to mind. And we see a very similar engagement by Paul in his final charge to the Ephesian elders. Before they parted ways from one another, the elders were weeping. They were heartbroken. That they, but Paul says, you're not going to see me in this natural life again. So they're heartbroken, hugging, clinging to Paul. And this was part of his final charge to them. He tells them, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, what's going to happen? They're going to have rapid growth and continued maturity. After my departure, savage wolves will come in among you 
Who's he talking to? He's talking to the, the elders of a beloved, well-established church. Savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be watchful, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one of you with tears. So can you imagine Peter and Paul's burdens in these matters? Knowing that they were soon to leave this world, their, their life was soon to come to a conclusion and they could no longer, they knew when, when they were gone, they could no longer engage in the fight or stand in the gap for the church. They loved the church. That was a huge burden. They knew, they weren't the church's savior, but they were a stand-in to hold the line, to be found faithful. But these weren't their churches, were they? It wasn't, oh, Paul pastors his church, or Peter leads these churches. These were never their churches, and they were never their flocks. It was and always will be Christ's church and Christ's flock. You might be like, well, that's a, you know, no, no, no. That's an emphatic distinction we have to remember. It wasn't, well, Paul's gone. Well, everything's going to fall apart. Peter's saying he's going to die and everything's going to, it's Christ's church. So while these men's bodies would be returned to the ground and their spirit would join the presence of God as they await for their resurrection bodies, Christ has and always will remain faithful to his bride. Wolves would come in and they will do unimaginable harm, but they will answer to Christ. And with this, I hear the thundering statements of Ezekiel 34. I made reference to it earlier that I, I see not parallels, but enough similarities to it here in 2 Peter chapter 2. Because there we have Yahweh rebukes the wicked and failed leadership of Israel, charging them with their treatment of his flock. It's emphatic, stating time and time again that he will care for his flock, his sheep, his people. He doesn't say, you didn't care for your flock, or you didn't care for the, 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 the sheep of your pasture. He said, they're mine. That's where his offense was drawn to. And he will restore his sheep, and his servant David will shepherd his flock. And I know Peter and Paul, they understood this, right? They're not only good students of the scriptures, they're apostles and they're leaders of Christ's church, but they knew it was Christ's church. And it's a confidence that I'm sure was welled up within them that Christ will always care for. And we, again, we sing that today, right? He will hold me fast. Don't sing things you don't believe. So we believe that, right? And we hold fast to that ourselves, that the Lord will keep his church. He will preserve us. And it's a confidence that Peter and Paul had, and one that I hope to share at the end of my own race, having run to the point of exhaustion, coming to the end and finding rest and knowing that while threats will continue coming to the flock, that Christ is faithful and he will keep and care for his own. It's not about, well, what's going to happen when we're gone? Same thing that happened before we got here. Christ maintained the faithful care of his church. He rose people up, he protected, he cared for them. And with this, I think about um, John MacArthur, who's faithfully labored for Christ Church for decades now. His race is likely soon coming to an end. And a few weeks ago, I had an opportunity to hear from him in person again. And that was precious in its own right, but specifically twice in two different contexts. One of them was more of a uh, pre-conference pastoral engagement. The other was more of a general conference. He addressed those who have expressed 
fear or sorrow for their children and grandchildren. The same kind of fear and grief we're speaking to here, knowing that the present condition of the world and the clear trajectory of the days to come, oh, what's going to happen with them? Our poor children, our poor grandchildren, their children, what will come of them? And Pastor John gives such a wonderful response to this, and I'm paraphrasing as best I can here. He effectively stated that he has no such concerns for his children and their children because this is their generation's appointed time and opportunity to be faithful. It's their opportunity to show Christ's sufficiency. He noted that we've all been appointed for our time, and this is theirs. This is their appointed time. And I view that as a precious reflection and one that I think captured Peter and Paul's confidence for the church. But tragically, I don't think all pastors will end their races in a like measure of confidence because they have a sorrow about them, a sorrow informed by guilt, a guilt of not feeding, a guilt of not caring for, and a guilt of not protecting the flock as they should have. When it was their time, when it was their time to man the post. And this is among the reasons that I've stated that I hope I'll finish with a proper confidence. And I also pray that Frank and Matt and any other pastors that the Lord raises up for our fellowship will finish with a like confidence. And no small part of that confidence comes from both the feeding and the protecting of the flock. And if I have to self-evaluate, something I maybe morbidly enjoy doing, it just makes me sad, but uh, if I had to self-evaluate, I think it'd be a fair conclusion to state that we love feeding and nurturing in this flock. We're, we're feeders. And I think all of you get this. Some of you are nurturing folks, and others have certainly experienced the service of those who are. You come into their homes, and they, they just lock in on you. And you're not going to leave hungry. They refuse that. They will feed you. They love to care for others, and they will do this by means of generous, even overwhelming provision. You can't escape their exhortations to eat. Here, I made this for you. And you're thinking, that's not a portion. That is portions. <laughs> Have some more. I know that's not all you want. Have some more. And then you're leaving. Here, take some with you. We're grateful for our feeders, aren't we? And again, I know this is a precious part of our church culture here too. We're feeders. We try to give you as much as we can give you and a little something to take home and maybe even a little pack in your fridge as well. And some folks are protectors. Uh, they live with their head in a swivel. It's just always, there's a situational awareness. There's a threat out there. And I will find it. They know threats <laughs> exist. Uh, and they know that threats don't rest. And so neither will they. Um, and they thrive on being vigilant, always on the ready, staying in practice with a view to the threat on the horizon so that they can be the first to engage. Now, many of you um, know our dog, Major. So he's, he's a preciously kind animal, and he really just loves people. He's very generous in his affection, but it's in his DNA to protect his family. And so while we're gone right now, he, without prompt or training, goes on patrol. Never taught that dog to do this. But he's circling our house as we speak dozens of times in our absence and then meeting any vehicle that returns to the driveway he just squares off with it and it's very awkward you're trying to get by him and he just i don't know why you're here <laughs> and he promote and he his love promotes a diligence that doesn't find rest until we've returned so he's looking 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 how can i watch out how can i watch out they're not here i have to protect and that's what german shepherds do it's just part of what they do and so it is with the shepherds of Christ's flock. 
We are feeders, generous feeders, but also protectors of the flock, pacing and pacing, and if necessary, engaging until our Lord returns and we find rest. So here in chapter 2, we're transitioned from primarily being fed generously to the call to vigilance. A burdensome call to vigilance. And not simply because it's hard work. It is hard work, but because of the source and nature of the threat. You see what Peter's writing here? I don't mean to just casually read it and be like, yes, I understand that. False prophets arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you. And that grieves me. Does that bother you? That really bothers me. Threats are challenging enough, but threats among us, that's heartbreaking. And while there are many difficult things about the content of this chapter, this to me is the most burdensome of them all. The among you element. The fact that that Peter speaks so emphatically with such colorful and harsh language about those who were among us. Not somebody that, uh, that, that charged in and they just deny Christ or that they, they throw out whatever things or they just clearly had no association with the church, but those who were among you. And Peter is clear. The wolves are coming and they are coming in sheep's clothing. We see examples of this throughout chapter chapter 2. Verse 1, we have denying the master who bought them. Remember, we had to wrestle through that. There was a clear identification with, with the lordship of Christ. Yes, Christ is Lord, and they're denying him emphatically with their actions and lives. They feast with you. What do we do when I finally stop talking? We'll pray, we'll sing, and then we will enjoy fellowship together, right? What do we do on special occasions? We come together. It's like they were here. Because in some context, they have been. Verse 15, forsaking the right way, they've gone astray. Well, how do you forsake something? You had to have been there and experienced it. Chapter 2, verse 20, having both escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Remember, that's the language of us. Chapter 1 talks about that, escaping the defilements of the world. But here goes from us to them and having again been entangled by them. So how heartbreaking and frightening and tragic. But sooner or later, their identity becomes clear, doesn't it? An identity that Peter painfully spells out for us in this chapter. Now, in some measure, I may have stirred up uh, maybe some compassion for these tragic persons. Like, wait, they were, they were here. They were one of us. And, and we did walk with them. We did love them. We did pray for them. And it sounded like they prayed for us. It, it looked like they walked with us. And maybe there's a measure of compassion that's welled up within you, but let me be clear regarding their offense. A matter that we addressed some weeks ago now. They're not simply failures. We can have extraordinary compassion in those who, who have wrestled with sin and lost. Not because Christ wasn't sufficient, but because they yielded. But these aren't those who have failed. They are malicious deviants who have snuck in to destroy Peter writes, but again, false prophets arose among the people just as there will also be false teachers among you. And what are they doing? Who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. And many will follow their own, or follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. You need to look at that. The measure of compassion they were among us they were among us for a reason. Secretly introducing destructive heresies. 
denying the master who bought them, leading others away in their sensuality, causing the way of truth to be maligned, and greed exploiting you with false words. Not a very sympathetic company, is it? But a dangerous one. So while feeling the grief of the context, don't lose sight of the offense. And remember where we left off some four weeks ago now. How did Peter finish this introduction? Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. And from verses 4 through 10, Peter impacts just how sure, just how sure the false teacher's righteous judgment is and will be. It's as absolutely sure as your safekeeping. Remember how precious that is? He preserved Noah. He preserved Lot. And as sure as he protects the righteous, he will condemn and judge the unrighteous. The false teacher's righteous judgment is and will be a sure truth. It's as absolutely sure as your safekeeping, which is perfect and absolute, a point that Peter drives home using three dramatic and intense examples. And, and think about this. He's not just saying, um, I'm going to pull off my shelf uh, a book of examples of God's judgment. I don't know that that book exists. I'm sure if it could make money, somebody will publish it. But here we have, he's being very precise. And look at the choices he made in examples of God's judgment. In verse 4, the example of the wickedly perverse angels in the days preceding the Noahic flood. Their conclusion, delivered to chains of darkness and kept for judgment. In verses 4 through 5, the example of the ungodly generation of Noah's time. Their conclusion, worldwide flood, crushed and drowned to death. Verse 6 through 8, the example of wicked men of the valley in Sodom and Gomorrah. Their conclusion, fire from God, reducing them to ashes. Now Peter's conclusion... The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trial and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who go after the flesh and its corrupt lust and despise authority. That's verses 9 and 10. Now, did you catch a really important word there? I'm going to go ahead and just ask this out loud. What, what word really was the most jarring? You have severe judgment, severe judgment, severe judgment. <laughs> Wow, he said something pretty emphatically here. Any ideas? Especially. Especially. That's a frightening qualification, isn't it? Peter is making the larger point that the Lord will righteously judge the wicked, and then he narrows his focus and emphasis on a particular group. That's frightening. And that group was specifically the false teachers. And I want you to feel the weight of this, because Peter could have used any number of examples, but he chose these. So we have angels whose sexually perverse conduct has led to their supernatural incarceration for thousands of years, an immediate and unique condemnation among all other angelic offenders. We don't have a light parallel to that anywhere else in the scriptures. Nowhere else were fallen angels detained at a single point in time, only be kept there all the way until final judgment. That was a severe judgment. Then we have the people of Noah's generation, those whose thoughts were constantly fixed on evil and who were the only worldwide, worldwide generation in history to be completely destroyed. And then you have the perverse cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, which were divinely incinerated. And they're a point of illustration throughout the scriptures to express God's awesome judgment. 
So judgment is severe and sure, especially for those who would pervert and assault Christ's church through the role of the false teacher. Those who have been given a two-part description here. Those who go after the flesh and its corrupt lust and despise authority. So do you feel the weight of that? If you don't, I don't know that you know those texts. Because those are major, major points of judgment. And he draws on them and he says, so sure is God's judgment, especially toward this group. To those who go after the flesh and its corrupt lust and despise authority, the the characterization that he's already provided for the false teacher. And these two elements will prove to be the foundational identities of the false teacher throughout this chapter. So that painful, harsh language, it's really rooted. Here we have core seedbed uh, places which it sprouts up. Now what are the, the trails that I said we can follow for uh, in prior weeks for these offenders? Well, as with most offenders, you can usually follow one of two trails, money and morality. You can almost always sniff out the bad guy. Follow the money, follow the morality. The trail effectively every villain leaves in some measure. Every evildoer, every bad guy, every bad lady. But Peter is insightfully directed to have a view to their arrogance as well. To their, their shocking measure of pride. An offense that was so profound it has shadowed the explicit reference to money and financial gain. Which he does address. So Peter condenses his evaluation of the false teacher's common modus operandi, how they work, how they function, to sexual immorality and anti-authoritarian pride. That's the nature of the false teacher. Sexual immorality and anti-authoritarian pride. Those are kissing cousins, as it were. Sounds gross? It is, and such is the nature of them. Rarely apart and destructive to the core. Their appetite is for carnal things, distortion of God's gift of sexuality, which they use for their own pleasure, to accomplish their own objectives, and to destroy others, including those within the church. And they have a morbid, a morbid disregard for the God-ordained structure of authority, a matter that finds its most explicit and final expression in their failures to submit to the Lordship of Christ, but is demonstrably present in any number of other relationships too, from the home, bucking up and fighting authority in that context, to the church, to the workplace, they're not going to tell me what to do. To the civil magistrates and rulers, this is something that it should bother you. This is what they do. They will not joyfully submit or respect those who have been placed over them. They are a rule to themselves. So there you have two pillars of the identity and function of the false teacher. Sexual immorality and rebelliousness. And we'll see these characteristics inform and reflect the nature of the false teacher throughout this chapter and beyond. But chapter 2 is distinct in its firm treatment of these offenders. So let's map out where we've been and what's coming in five parts, what I view as an introduction, three what's and a why. It's the best I can do. Introduction, three what's and a why. So first, two, one through three. This section we walk through is establish the introduction of the false teacher's identity and conduct. The second section, one that we've walked through, 2, 4 through 10, expresses the surety of the false teacher's judgment. The third, verses 10 and 11, here we'll see an expression of one of the false teacher's identifying core elements, namely their proud rebelliousness expressed in the most dramatic way, their blaspheming glorious ones. Verses 12 through 16, 
we'll see an expression of their, own, of their other identifying core element, namely their corrupt lust expressed in shameless carousing and profound immorality. And then fifth, 17 to 22, here we see an outworking of these major elements, which is accompanied by an unmasking, as it were, a revealing of the core of their persons, namely that they are both that they're but entangled slaves having tasted and scorned freedom. So today, it's a little bit different, but I want to set a tone, a pastoral tone. We're going to continue to walk through that, but today I've attempted to refresh some elements of the book for you with a view to this weighty chapter in which Peter colorfully and vigorously engages false teachers. A chapter I'm breaking up for you again in three sections with five parts. The introduction, who are they? The what sections, the outworking and outcome of their identity. The first, what is, uh, which is judgment. They're guaranteed a sure and righteous and terrible judgment. The second, an expression of their core character. They're arrogant fools who despise authority. The third, an expression of their core character. Lust-driven fools who merit their unrighteous wages. And finally, the why, which again is 17 to 22. How to understand who and what they are. Because if they come from among us, how? How do we understand that? How'd that happen on my watch? How'd that happen on your watch? Because they're apostate slaves of their own corruption. Now, as we've come to, as we work toward a conclusion here, I want to finish with a supplemental warning for us. Not just talking to internet land or whatever groups, I'm talking to us. We've already referenced the command of chapter one to be diligent to supply our faith with what? Moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly love, and agape love. And have been reminded that, chapter 1, verse 8, if these things, these things are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the full knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is our aim. That is what we must be diligently applying ourselves toward. We also understand there are terrible enemies of Christ's church. You understand that, right? It's not just uh, Muslim-majority nations or challenges to the church. This is internal, horrific threats to the church. Enemies of Christ's church who would express and identify, uh, they would express an identity or association with Christ, but they are perverse, they are corrupt, and have a sure judgment awaiting them. And with these two things in view, our clear aim and sure enemy, um, I want to pose a few rhetorical questions for us. I'm going to throw out some questions, and I'll answer them. So it may be semi-rhetorical, because I'm answering them. So do we on any level, and this is, I'm going to look at faces, I'm going to make sure we're connecting here, do we on any level want to be associated with, or identify with the content or conduct of these false teachers? No, of course not. So, we agree. Nobody's going to see except the person behind you. So just head nod on this. Do you want to be associated with these kind of false teachers? No. Okay, so we're clear. But does it appear that our common culture has welcomed the vulgar extremities and perversions of the false teacher? Yeah. Tragically so. And by what means has this happened? I'll answer this one. You might have your own opinions when we talk about it in fellowship time. Well, I would say by what means... Well, I say in view of the fact that Satan is described in Ephesians chapter 2 as the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working the sons of disobedience, it should really come at no great surprise that he has a like 
and perverse influence on both the false teacher and the culture at large. You see that? It's not that they've just drifted toward, oh, they're just like the world. No, they have a common source, the common source of offense, and we need to see it as that. But what is a common strategy he might employ? Well, perhaps the common strategy of taking that which is taboo, that which you don't talk about, that which you don't express in speech, most certainly in conduct. You don't, don't do taboo things. You don't talk about taboo things. It's, it's inappropriate. It's out of bounds. And then taking from something that was taboo and introducing it maybe to an academic discussion. And from introducing it to an academic discussion to introducing it to maybe more edgy entertainment until it finally wades itself into common entertainment and finally to popular conduct. We give a number of examples. We've seen this happen over the last, I know the last 20 years. I can give you point after point after that, and that's not necessary for this context, but it's clear. And before long, those who go after the flesh and its corrupt lust and despise authority have gone from villains to heroes. Isn't that strange? And have you seen that? Okay. They've gone from outcast to friends. From those who are put out of the church to those who teach within it. And that's the nature of not culture. That's the nature of the false teacher. And this is why I want to echo Peter's urgency. The urgency of, I know I'm soon to be gone. The urgency to press you again and again and again to be diligent to supply your faith. Because these things don't hold up in the context of the false teacher. Can they be morally excellent? No. Do they have true knowledge of the things of God in Christ? No. Do they exercise self-control? No. Are they persevering? No. Is there expressions of godliness? Absolutely not. Do they exercise brotherly love? No. Do they have agape love? No. So you... When you diligently apply these things to your faith, we're going to look more and more like Christ and less and less like the condemned company. Do you understand the difference? They've gone from hero, or from villains to hero, from outcast to friends. But let it not be said with us. It doesn't work if you're doing these things. It's a company that will exploit our weaknesses of failure to faithfully strengthen our faith. Therefore, we have to strengthen our faith and in becoming casually comfortable with the very hallmarks of their offenses. So if you become weak in doing these things, you will not only become unfruitful and deficient in your knowledge of the Lord, you will become casually comfortable with that which is corrupting and destroying not only culture, but Christ's church. So you understand, don't you, that Peter warns they will come among us. And that grieves me. I mean, we don't look out and be like, what, what we're, we're not at the table of, the, of the, the final Passover with the Lord and his disciples saying, who, which one? I don't look out and say, I, I know it's one of you. I just know that Peter says, this is the nature of the church. They come into the church. And that grieves me. And I pray they will have so, they will have so fortified this body that will have just fed you to the point of just exploding and protected you to the point of like, this is over the top that this body, they'll see no value in remaining or engaging this flock. Move on to softer, easier targets. You know, that's what you do for your home. You make it a harder target. You can't stop everything, but you made it a harder target. That's what we do for the church. 
so that they won't lead you astray. They won't malign the truth while in our company. And so we're going to feed you and feed you and feed you. And you're like, boy, that's enough. Your watches are just, they're wore out. The battery's dead. The clock's in the foyer. When does it stop? Just a little bit more. So you can leave when your belly's full, you've been filled to abundance, and you have something to take home for later. But we're also going to do our best to protect you. We're going to labor and fighting for you in prayer. You know, that's a big part of the work. I can't do much. Frank and Matt, as gifted as able as I, they can't do but so much. We can't be your Holy Spirit. We can't walk with you and hold your hand all your life. We can't tell you what to think about everything. That's the work of the Spirit of God, right? And he does it much better than we could. And so we labor in prayer. We labor in prayer. We walk together. We walk with an awareness that, um, and, and we, we give doctrinal clarity. We provide lives of holiness. We cultivate lives of holiness. But we also labor and walk with an awareness that Peter speaks plainly, that they will come. We know that. They will come. And later, when Jude writes to these matters, he tragically reports what? They have come. You know, these, I don't want to call them jerks, but I mean, they are. Um, <laughs> these commentators that say, well, you know, Peter borrowed from Jude. You know what they're doing? They're undermining the integrity of Second Peter. Well, why? Because he undermined them. They didn't like that. Jude comes later. And that's important because he talks about some very similar things. Peter says, they're coming. Jude says, they've come. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt, the necess I felt the necessity to write to you, exhorting that you contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Remember secretly introducing her destructive heresies? Those who were long before marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this can be pretty disheartening, can it? But I want you to peek ahead how these two men finish their letters, both Peter and Jude, letters which detail the weight and burdens of false teachers assaulting Christ's beloved flock. And I'm going to give them to you in reverse order because I want to finish with Peter. Peter wrote first, Jude later, but we're in Peter and I want to finish with Peter. Jude, verses 24 and 25. He finishes. They, they've crept in. They've gotten in. They're here. But he finishes. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, might, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. We have a clear encouragement, don't we? It's like Jude finishes. He says, they're here, but... Boys and girls, chin up, eat well, stay in the fight. Christ keeps his own and he will be exalted. And then we have our dear friend, Peter. And he finishes. He's already said, they're coming in and boy, are they terrible. But they're coming. But he finishes with, you therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard, lest you, having been carried away by the error of unprincipled men, fall from your own steadfastness. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen.
as we established with the introduction to this letter, Peter's desire, Peter's desire, this isn't just a thematic tie-in for the book. This is Peter's desire, and by extension, the desire of your pastors for you and for ourselves is that we will know, we will grow, and we will stay. And by God's grace, we will do that. May come in, we'll hold our ground because Christ holds us fast. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we would wish differently for your church, but it's not our church. And we didn't write the story. And we don't know the hows and the whys of the nature of sin and failure and wicked men and wicked persons and wicked influences, but we do know that even through these things, you are exalted and made much of. It reflects even really the nature of the fall when all things were declared to be good. Man was in perfect relationship with you and there was a sweet, just glorious experience in this natural world. But then sin was introduced and corruption, but restoration, promise and glories that would have never been revealed otherwise. And perhaps that's what we'll just have to find comfort in that among the testimonies of your church will be the assaulted from without and assaulted from within, you kept it. You showed yourself faithful. It wasn't just that you had the means and the kindness and the, the mercy to preserve your people when those who denied the truth in a more explicit and overt way assaulted it, but even those who would creep in. That your church is able to stand, able to persevere, able to to do as you said and put your magnificence on display and when it's all said and done you will present her blameless and with great joy so Lord we thank you that in the better part of wisdom wisdom that we again don't have the capacity to apprehend this is this is good the keeping of your church at least and so Lord we pray keep us how presumptuous would it be to say not here never well, can't think of a church that has more than a, all that long of a legacy and maybe churches that we know of that are 200 years old well, if we look back there were generations of corruption and loss that, and your mercy you brought them out of others that have come and gone in terms of their natural physical manifestation so Lord we don't know what you have for Grace Bible Church we don't know that you'll allow us to, to tarry until you return as so far as a, a corporate identity but we know that you will keep your church and we pray that you keep this church that you would find us faithful that you give us the the insight to, to understand our own weaknesses and propensity to drift, members to leadership and everywhere else, that we wouldn't be so proud that we wouldn't think that it can't and won't happen here. Lord, preserve, keep your body, keep us, help us to be found faithful also to labor on behalf of one another, to seek one another's purity and holiness and joy in Christ, to promote the diligent supplying of our faith with these things. Because we know for fact, 
if we supply our faith with these things, there is no ground for distortion, perversion, or failure. That our entrance into the eternal kingdom is absolute and sure. So if we do that as a church body, we will be kept. So Lord, please help us. Please Lord, preserve. Please Lord, strengthen. Make much of your name in and amongst us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.